This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman, and this morning for Catherine Cruz. On Maui this morning, one of the continuing discussions is about timing. Time for grief and reflections on loss, but also time for planning, imagining the future, and leaving time and space for community voices at every step of the way. That was the focus of an extraordinary meeting of the Maui County Council yesterday. Nearly 50 people signed up to testify. We want you to hear some of the voices from that session this morning, starting with Maui County Council Chair Alice Lee. From a practical point of view, we're the body that has actually the time to go and gather the information from the community because um, the federal agencies, the state agencies, and even the administration is still very much preoccupied with um, search and recovery. So I think it's incumbent upon us to take the lead in getting the input from the community on what their priorities are. And the reason why it's important, even though it's difficult because they still are grieving and, and are hurt and are angry and frustrated and so forth. If we don't collect this information in an orderly and timely manner, then others may be making decisions for them. And so we will, with the information we collect, we will have information that is accurate and represents the community and can be confirmed. And it's gonna be on the record. So when we say the community wants X, we know what we're saying and we can prove it. So it's important for us to proceed to get the information so that when the time comes and the money starts flowing from the federal government and the state government, that the money is spent in the right places. Maui County Council Chair Alice Lee. Council Member Tamara Palton represents West Maui and started with some very basic logistics aimed at a key question. What is the best way to hear from the community that's been most severely impacted? If we start out with, with some listening sessions and um, perhaps the hotels will let us do their ballroom for one, maybe the um, maybe Maui Prep would let us use their gymnasium, but um, a lot of folks lost their vehicles. Um, you know, getting a shuttle up and running, I think is one of the things that, that are in the works. So once people have their housing a little bit more firmed up and their transportation, new transportation methods firmed up, and, and then they can start processing their feelings. Um, I think it's important too when we, we set up these listening sessions that we are clear on um, what is the topic. I know and and I believe that there does need to be accountability. Um, but we need to sort out, you know, which meeting is for which and stay focused on the topic of the meeting at hand. So if we're having a meeting on accountability, it's all about accountability. If we're having a meeting on moving forward um, through housing, it's all on that um, and, and communicate that uh, we're not just going to go out there one time for one issue, I think, um, un unless by some miracle everyone starts to get power and um, connection. That was Maui County Council Member Tamara Paulton, who represents West Maui. Power, by the way, is still coming back slowly. The latest from the county is that nearly 2,000 customers in West Maui and about 50 upcountry are still without power. Phone and internet connectivity remain spotty. Crews are working on all of that. Elsewhere in the county council, uh, Autumn Ness. She's not a county council member, but she's an aide to council member Gabe Johnson, who represents Lanai. She started off telling the council that she wasn't speaking in the capacity of her job. I'm also not a Lahaina resident, so me speaking here is a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm just going to have to do it. Um, I was in a lot of meetings in the first few days after this disaster where people are talking about Lahaina folks without them in the room and it felt really gross. Um, so I just, I couldn't handle it. So I went west side 
where I knew folks were operating and I've been there almost every day since. Um, and so because I can be in this space and I'm not over there, I feel compelled to pass things on that I don't feel are being understood. Um, first, I hear some people talk about it, but I don't know if you folks are digesting it. Folks are still in active mourning, literally trying to stay alive. Um, and in that is a collective rage. And I don't say that lightly. There is a collective rage um, that a lot of this feels like a setup. A lot of this feels like, I'm not talking conspiracy theory like somebody went and lit the fire. I'm talking about this is the result of a decades and generations long conversation that West Maui has had with people in charge that this is going to happen between Miko and the power lines and the fire response and the water department not communicating to people that there is a problem with their water properly, between the sirens not going up, off people are pissed and it's justifiable. And in the face of all of that, these resident, these resilience hubs, whatever you wanna call them, these Ohana hubs have been established quickly because of the relationships of the ties in West Maui and outside of West Maui that are beyond government and agencies. And the feeling, the palpable feeling in the couple of days after this disaster that we are on our own. We have, nobody is coming to save us. We've been asking for help for decades and nobody's coming to save us. And so now we're gonna feed and water and medicine ourselves. And now, a few weeks in, agencies and government people are starting to come in and be like, we have the answer and we have these protocols that you have to follow and here's our policies. And people are like, get lost. Why would I trust you after you put our town in this position and after you left us for dead and now you come in and you tell us how to do things? It's insulting. I'm not even from there and I'm shaking with anger because I see it happen every day and I just, cannot handle. It's really hard to trust the agencies that put you in this very position to get you out of it. That's, that's Autumn Ness speaking to the Maui County Council as a Maui County resident. While she doesn't live in Lahaina, she's been working there since the fires. And she also told the council yesterday that the pace of the response does not match the urgency of the situation. The urgency of the situation in the beginning was gasoline, water, food, and everybody was so slow. And now all of a sudden people are talking about rebuilding. Like that's the most urgent thing. The most urgent thing right now is getting people in some kind of shelter where they know they're gonna be there for a year. That's not gonna be a home that's built on vacant county land. That could be, the urgency right now should be clearing out Airbnbs and non-essential, units for people to live and catch a breath and mourn with their family so that in six months or a year from now they can digest the conversation about what do we do next the urgency about having this rebuild conversation where people still don't have roofs over their heads they have 30-day vouchers for their airbnb and they don't know where they're going to be in a month that's urgent people don't even have the space to talk about rebuilding because they don't know where they're going to be in in two weeks so this rebuilding needs to just hang on for a minute and urgently this county can clear out things that are made for visitors and house people there and the economy all around tourism on the west side, people should be paid those same good jobs to care for their own community at this point. And then we can talk about rebuilding. That was Autumn Ness, an aide to Maui County Council member Gabe Johnson, but speaking to the Maui County Council yesterday as a private citizen about discussions on rebuilding West Maui. Maui County Council is discussing a resolution about developing a comprehensive recovery and resiliency plan to respond to the wildfires and their devastation. Federal aid has made its way to Maui, but from the beginning, survivors have relied on the efforts of the community. HBR reporter Catherine Kulipakdal went to one of the community uh, hubs in Pohaka Park in Napili, set up early on to find out about the operation, and she joins us more with, uh, with more. Catherine, that was, uh, that was quite the visit. Morning, Bill. I'm uh, back on Moloka'i now, and yes, it was. It's um, just incredible to see 
these non-governmental hubs that are community-run, community-donated, um, that were there from day one, as we just heard from Autumn. I mean, people just did what they had to do to survive, um, and those efforts have continued. The resources um, at Pohaku Park, which is also known as S-Turns, um, specifically, you know, they have they have food, they have canned goods, as well as hot meals, they have water, clothing, medical services, mental health counseling, massage practitioners, Starlink internet access, you know, a tent with school supplies and baby essentials and toys. And it's just incredible to see there's a steady stream of convoys um, with donated items arriving, individuals, organizations, um, and people just drop whatever they're doing um, at the hub and help um, unload these items. These folks have helped thousands of people since the day they started after the fire. Kanamu Belinbin and his wife Rochelle were among the first to organize um, this hub at S-Turns. It was right after the fire and they brought all the supplies they had at their house, which, you know, they're grateful they their home was saved, um, so they did lose their jobs and, and friends and family in the fire. But within an hour, he Kanamu says people were bringing truckloads of generators and propane and canned goods, and they've just gotten support from across Hawaii. Um, here's Kanamu Belinden. You know, I believe we were the very first hub to start. We went from one tent to two tents to three tents. Now we have like 10 tents. We have a couple of carports people brought. The outpouring of community support. This is all donations we're getting, just from regular people. Everybody that comes, we said, oh, who do you represent? They just say, oh, we, re we represent ourselves. We represent Maui. You know, we re represent the people. And so we want to, we, we kept it that way. We let Red Cross come by and talk to people. And anyone who wants to, we have a sign-up sheet if they want to get in touch with Red Cross and FEMA. But as local people, we're really skeptical on how they want to do things. As local people from this island, we're used to fending for ourselves. You know, that, that theme, Catherine, of self-sufficiency is something that you you hear and you feel, and it is just such a, a shared theme across so much of this. It is, and I think that skepticism that he talks about comes from, as Autumn was just referencing, that, la that length of time it took for government to come through and, and offer these support services. And by the time they did, you know, community had set up you know, a, a tiny Costco in every corner, and they were taking care of each other. And, and you know, we see that continuing. Here's um, Rochelle Belinbin talking about that community effort. We are a couple of families that got together, and now all the other community is coming in and shipping in, and people that are displaced are coming down because they're just looking for some normalcy and some companionship. And so we're just here. It's beautiful because our community is helping each other. We've been helping each other from the beginning, and we've come in as strong as Lahaina has always been, where everybody's showing up and chipping in and donating their time, their resources, whatever they can donate. We ask, what do you feel comfortable doing? And we put them there. People that, that are even still working and have their homes are coming down and chipping in and sorting all the clothes and sorting the donations and making sure that we cycle them out and keep them fresh and nothing gets wasted and going out and finding the, the families that are too shamed to come down. And so we're finding ways to go deliver to them as well. We're just showing up every day until we're not needed because we don't know how long this is going to be. Don't know how long this is going to be. And also, uh, Catherine, don't know, don't know how this is going to continue to evolve in that sense of, of meeting needs and, and meeting people where they are. It is. It's true. It, you know, it's constantly changing. Um, the county is now saying that, that most of the folks are out of the shelters that were established. And um, the S-Turns Community Hub is helping support nearly 150 families that just moved into a hotel across the road from them. So um, Rochelle and Kanamu say that, that they're, uh, you know, helping bring those folks food and, and invite them over to get whatever resources they need there. Um, and I think it's important to, you know, acknowledge um, amidst all the resiliency and community support and, you know, just really positive things that the community has had to come together to do. There's, there's so much grief um, and folks, a lot of folks haven't had time to stop and process that. Here's Panamu Belinbin talking about processing the tragedy. You know, a lot of us here at the hub, we haven't even had time to grieve 
the few of us that went to Lahaina or had to go to the other side to Wailuku to our county capital, when they come back, you can just see the grief and the, the hurt on their face. I'm a Desert Storm veteran, and to me, it looks like a war zone, like somebody dropped a thousand smart bombs or one big bomb in our town, and it just blew up. We, we understand that the rescue effort is going to take a while. A lot of people are still wondering where their loved ones are and how, how did they pass away. Or People really want to know so that they can start to mourn and they can process, process the grief that everyone has. Continuing with that, that story, and Catherine, thank you so much for your coverage from Maui, and uh, we'll be going back, we'll be staying with this story. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, HPR's Catherine Kulipactal on Maui's community recovery efforts. You can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from HomeWorks Construction, a full-service design-build general contractor committed to working with homeowners to design and build homes with the future in mind. HomeWorksConstruction.com This Thursday and Friday, HPR is fundraising on air and online to help the Maui community recover from the devastating fire in Lahaina. 100% of your donations will go to Hawaii Community Foundation's Maui's Strong Fund. Please join us as we come together to support Maui. Support for HPR comes from Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual Open House Sunday, August 27th. More by searching O-L-L-I-U-H-M. Maui's local business community is playing a role in helping people on the ground in West Maui. This week, we spoke with Garrett Marrero, the co-founder and CEO of the Maui Brewing Company. He has some thoughts on the importance of tourism for the entire island, but we started off talking about how he reacted to the immediate aftermath of the fires. Two weeks ago, I was focused on all Maui Brewing and our restaurants, the new one that just had opened um, five days before the fire. But, you know, I switched on Wednesday to running missions to support our community and just pushed the business aside onto my team. And they handled it very well. But it's hard to believe it's been, you know, two weeks and uh, all that we've done and all that still needs to be done. Yeah, I hear you're, make, you're making regular runs into Lahaina. What's, what's that like? What are you doing? And how are the folks that you're, that you're helping? You know, so we, we jumped into action Wednesday morning uh, two weeks ago. We know so this was the morning after the fire. Uh, I had been behind the brewery till about 1.30 with the fire that was coming towards Kihei. Uh, we were fortunately all NBC facilities were unscathed. Uh, you know, and we do, of course, have all of our people accounted for at this point, which is good, but many have lost homes. Uh, so we jumped into action immediately, uh, clearing out our cupboards at home, all of our emergency supplies, water, you know, medical kits, et cetera. Uh, Humane Society dumped food in the back of the truck. Uh, we got ice, we got fuel, picked up a generator and just went west side. Um, I, of course, had to get clearance through MPD and through the county. Uh, and that took, uh, that was pretty quick, uh, just given our relationships. Um, I think they knew that we were going to help, uh, not, to, not for any other purpose. So um, we ran missions uh, all the way through, consistently through Tuesday of this last week. So about a week ago, we uh, stepped kind of stood down a little bit uh, because all the supplies, even as early as the Saturday prior, were starting to, you know, be uh, well stocked to the point that the supply hubs would turn us away with items, with certain items especially. We flew missions as well as a pilot. I flew some medical missions to get uh, immediate needs taken care of for prescription drugs and insulin and those types of things as well. So um, 
A short answer, we jumped into action to do whatever the community needed to make sure that we could be resilient together. It, it was not business focused. It was all people focused. You know, supply lines are something you deal with all the time. And mm-hmm. in the immediate aftermath of that, how, how were things then and how's the restoration process now and what's the outlook? Yeah. Um, oh, God, outlook. <laughs> that was a whole other story. I don't know how long you have. You know, I would say the supply lines are good. You know, this is very different than pandemic. Um, you know, while Maui has been heavily impacted and the West Maui community in particular, um, let's not forget our upcountry family as well, um, you know, but Lahaina side has been just obliterated. And um, where in pandemic, the world shut down and kind of forgot about Hawaii as a whole. Uh, where we couldn't get uh, containers shipped in regularly, then there'd be no one to unload them and those types of things. This is very different. You know, normal ordering processes and cycles and, of shipping are, are, are holding. Um, there's been no delays at the ports. There's been no problems getting things. Um, you know, so that at least gives us that resiliency. So I can tell you that so many goods were purchased central and south and uh, donated west side that the shelves were empty here in Kihei and in central Maui for at least a couple of days until the restocks came in. Uh, but I think that's really leveled off. And now with the road open, um, you know, our residents are able to either pick up donations at donation sites or supply themselves. President Biden was in and Governor Green talking about uh, tourism, and that's been such a attention point in, in some ways. What do you feel about uh, tourists? What's the, what's the message for tourism now? I can say outlook, um, you know, we're very positive people, uh, but we know that it's going to fall on us much like it did for the first few days of this crisis. Uh, and when I say us, I mean private industry to uh, that we're community members. We're here on the street every day. Um, you know, it's going to be a long road, um, but it starts with tourism. I, you know, and this is this is not a time where we can allow one disaster that we could not control, um, and we can't control it, it, the outcome, of course, right? You know, we can't go backwards in time, uh, but we can control how we move forward. And by creating another economic disaster, by not promoting tourism to Maui, and then, frankly, some were promoting exactly the opposite of that, saying no tourism, uh, that creates an economic disaster that won't that will slow the recovery, and not allow us to be here in five years when hopefully we're fully rebuilt. Um, so I think because we can control that by the proper messaging, I look at tourism as, as very simple. You know, if you're going to come to Hawaii, come to Maui in particular, don't go to West Maui right now. They're, the hotels aren't even taking reservations. And don't go to Lahaina if you're staying south side to take selfies in front of burnt homes. Do come to Maui, stay in South Maui, enjoy your time on the beach, relax by the pool, drink a Maui Brewing Company beer, and serve the community. And whether that be donations to local charities or serving alongside a member of the Maui Food Bank, the Maui Humane Society, and hopefully soon the Habitat for Humanity, um, that is responsible tourism, is come here with an intent to serve, but do enjoy yourself while you're here and experience what Hawaii has to offer. And um, Maui, to me, is one of the most special places on earth. And I know a lot of tourists want to be coming back here, and they should be. Um, South Maui, Central Maui, North Shore, Hana, we're open and we're ready. Um, So we'd very much like to see the world come back and help us rebuild. Because if they don't come back now, there won't be much to rebuild. Attention spans are fleeting in the world. Does that concern you a bit about spotlights so intensely on Maui right now? That's not necessarily going to linger. Yeah. Um, that is not lost on any of us, I can tell you. Um, we, we have been trying to stay in the light. Like if you sent me that email, I said, I can do it now. Because while I've got your attention on it, I'm going to take that time. So, um, you know, and that's to shine the light on Maui and keep it as bright as possible. Uh, I'm from San Diego, and of course, we just saw Hillary come through. Um, that was, you know, we were nervous about that. We own a condo there that's getting re-roofed, so it, we were just waiting to get the call that it got flooded. Fortunately, we were spared. But I have to be honest, I'm glad it wasn't a tragedy as was maybe expected, uh, because it would have taken the light 
at least a little of the light away from uh, Maui. And until we get to the point where Joe Biden says, you know what, I know we, we need billions, we're going to make sure you have that. Um, until we get to that point, we can feel confident about that money coming. Uh, we have to be thinking about it from raising the money through charitable organizations and picking ourselves up as opposed to, um, you know, waiting for the help. Anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I think the best message I can say right now is that there are millions of people around the world that have been to Maui. Um, you know, I put some rough numbers together, and if uh, every person who's been here in the last two years, you know, if you're a family of 10 or five or two, it uh, doesn't matter. And if you eat, put in $10 for every person that came to Maui, that's $60 million that we could raise very quickly, and that would go a long way in rebuilding communities. Um, you know, a lot of great 501c3 charities. So the best way you can help is no need to send more diapers, no need to send more supplies, uh, but the cash is what will help us, A, buy the supplies ourselves, as well as uh, rebuild this community. So please consider reputable local uh, Maui charities that are 501c3. And, um, you know, if you love Maui, please consider helping out. And we'll look forward to seeing you return tourism starting now. Garrett Mahal for your time today. Thank you. Always nice to talk to you. You bet. Appreciate it. All right. Aloha. All right. Take care. Aloha. Garrett Marrero, co-founder and CEO of the Maui Brewing Company. If you're looking for another way to donate, Hawaii Public Radio, partnering with the Hawaii Community Foundation to raise funds for Maui and relief and recovery. You can find information at hawaiipublicradio.org slash Maui Strong. Every person who went through the fires on Maui has a story. We want to bring some of those stories to you, but only when people are ready to talk. The conversation Stephanie Hahn spoke with Sule Gordon. He's lived in Maui half his life. Sule Gordon was born in Guyana, educated in California, and came to Maui in 1995 as an artist, musician, and dancer. It was there he found belonging and home. A husband and father of three young daughters under the age of six, he lost his home in the Waikuli district of Lahaina. Sula shared some of his thoughts last week after the fires began. On that day of August 8th, you didn't hear anything. So what did you yeah, and your family do? that has a civil, I assume, must be only tidal wave warning or, you know, which is tested every first Tuesday of the month. At 11.45 for the last, I don't know how many decades, we heard no such warning. We had no clear message. And and many, many folks had it infinite times worse than I did. Now that we see and hear other stories, we understand the timeline for others was even shorter, much more extreme, and unbelievable still. We were held out because we've been in the situation before. When they said evacuate, we departed. When did you return to your home? I returned to my home. I was had to bicycle in from a beach we call Canoe Beach. Had to see neighbors in the morning who knew they were already homeless, who knew they were already without shelter, who had spent the night on the beach, spent the night in the holly at the canoe clubs, which provided shelter. Pedaled past homes that were still smolderings and homes that were ignited by the time I returned. This is 7.30 a.m. I, I went alongside the Waikuli uh, Beach Park Trail. I rode my bicycle over electric lines, on the ground, on the air. I had to assume they were powered off because we had no power for the, uh, the, the day before. It's a uh, very desolate street, much smoke still smoldering, telephone poles, big massive monkey tree, monkey pot trees still on fire within themselves. 
small fires in yards still, and I made it all the way up to my front driveway and witnessed that the tallest structure on my driveway was a carport and a stove. The tallest thing where the house used to be. We've suffered a tremendous loss. And we're at a loss of words. We're weeping at night and crying ourselves to sleep. That's real talk. How did you come to Maui? Came to Maui as an artist. Playing music. In a dance community. That welcomed me. In a Hawaiian culture. That welcomed me as a Rastafarian. And I never left. I first came to Maui in 1995. The situation is undescribable. A summary is not possible at this time. Information is still being gathered. Resources are still being recognized. But the folks of this island have a certain kind of determination, a certain kind of perseverance, a unique strength. It's Hawaiian. It has to do with Maui. And it's called mana. Folks are going to rebuild face unbelievable challenges and come together as they always have. This is our modern day Pompeii. What's critical for folks outside to know is that your help is not taken for granted. And your help must be sustained. Folks are calling us, asking what to do. I say, you are November, you are December, you are January, you are February, and so on and so on. And it won't be easy. When was it that you knew that Lahaina was your home? The embrace I felt from the community many, many years ago through the paddling community, the Va'a community of West Maui and the entire island community, through the community my children have had short experience with for their education and the strong sense of belonging that was granted to me by the great people of Lele. Where were you originally from prior to Maui? I am the creation of Edward Gordon and Jacqueline Paul of Guyana, Georgetown, Guyana, where I was born in 1972. a Caribbean country nestled on the north coast of South America that identifies with the struggle like Hawaiian people do. I come from a long line of public public radio family members. That's what makes me really emotional because it's heavy that like you all are reaching out and I'm raised on public radio. We're honored to be on your program and to get the message out there that help is needed financially, emotionally, spiritually. And don't hesitate to call somebody you may have known or just met for a second. And it's been that, Stephanie. It's somebody that I was a, a, a tourist guide for 
for one hour and shared my number with them and said to them, hey, anytime when you're on the island, call me. If you have any questions about where to go, what to do, you feel lost or anything like this, a scenario that may have been 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, those people are all surfacing. Do that for others. We're all sharing each other's needs and each other's places of receiving funds. Please. This is how folks can help. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your story. I really will hold the thoughts of your family with all of us here. Respect and aloha, Stephanie. Aloha. Sule Gordon of Lahaina talking to HPR's Stephanie Hahn. If you've got a story you're ready to tell, we would like to hear it. Uh, you can call us at 808-792-8217, 808 8217 or you can write us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. This Saturday, HPR presents The Mob. This in-person event is part of HPR's Indie 808 Performance Series. Experience this exclusive set at our Atherton studio in Honolulu. Purchase your tickets online at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, offering guidance on how to help babies sleep safely by always placing baby on their back with a fitted sheet but no toys, blankets, or pillows. Learn more at cpsc.gov. Turning to some other coverage today, it's time for the Manu Minute. And today we're on the lookout for the native akepa, a little honey creeper that likes to make nests in the biggest, oldest ohia trees. Here's the University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. Hawaii akepa are an endangered Hawaiian honey creeper that are found only on the Big Island. As honey creepers, they're descended from an original group of finches that found their way to Hawaii from Asia over 5 million years ago. They're a very unusual bird in that the males are bright, almost fluorescent orange, like the color of a traffic pylon, while the females are grayish-green with a wash of orange across their breast. Akepa are among the smallest of all honey creepers, weighing only about 10 grams, or a third of an ounce. In Hawaiian, Akepa means nimble and quick, which they use to their advantage as they forage high up in the canopy of ohia trees and use their crossed bill to pry open leaf buds in search of insects and spiders. Akepa were once common all over the Big Island, but today they're only found in old-growth ohia and koa forests above about 5,000 feet in elevation. Below that, they can get bitten by mosquitoes that transmit avian malaria, and a single bite of a mosquito can mean death for one of these birds. Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge on the windward side of Hawaii Island is one of the best places to hear the pleasant, high-pitched trill of the males as they try to impress the wary females during breeding season. Akepa are also unusual in that they're obligate cavity nesters. Whereas most other honeycreepers build cup nests in the outer branches of trees, akepa require natural cavities that only form in the trunks and limbs of the biggest and oldest ohia and koa trees. Because of this, the size of the akepa population, estimated to be only about 10,000 birds, is also limited by the amount of high-elevation, old-growth forest that still exists on Hawaii. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, exploring Hawaii Island with visitors and kama'aina for 30 years. More information at hawaii-forest.com.
reducing plastic pollution is an issue that's being addressed around the world and at many levels, from the United Nations all the way down to local government and communities. One woman hoping to contribute to that effort is Oahu resident Kate Ryman. She's the owner of Rogue Wave Toys, which has developed a beach set for kids made from compostable plastic. The conversation is Russell Subiano sat down with Ryman in our studio to talk about how she came up with the idea and her journey to bring the product to market. I came up with this idea, I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but after a day at the beach with my kids. We were living on the East Coast at the time, and we had a conventional plastic beach toy set that they were playing with, and it had lots of parts to it. And the kids were playing on shore, and this wave came and took all of their toys out into the ocean, and I sort of went into high alert and was like, not on my watch, like hyper aware of the plastic pollution problem that we have, especially in the ocean. And so I'm like running into the ocean trying to pull back all these beach toys and I collect them all back on shore. And I kind of had this moment where I'm like sitting on shore, looking up and down at all of the material that we bring with us to the beach. And I was like, what are we doing? You know, we we're interfacing here with the ocean and it's like we're bringing the problem right to it. And that's an oversimplification, I think, of how plastic gets into the ocean. But it was this really dramatic sort of lightning bolt moment for me. Like, I have to make this better. You did bring the set in with you today. Well, it's been a long time from that first moment on the beach to now. It's been about seven years total. And so just the other day, I got the the order that I had placed, like a sample order. I just wanted to see what my customers were going to see and receive it the way my customers were going to receive it. And so that order came in the mail just a couple of days ago, and I couldn't open it. <laughs> I couldn't. I, I was very excited that it arrived, and I'm seeing friends and family and customers open it on Instagram. They're sending me photos, but I couldn't bring myself to open it. And it sat there and I was sort of hoping for inspiration, like there will be a right moment. And the right moment came just before coming down to the studio (laughs) because (laughs) I just wanted you to be able to see it. So you forced my hand there, which is a good thing. Good. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to pass it over to me and I'm going to, I'm going to check it out. Okay. Okay. All right. So here we go. Over to you. All right. So from the pictures I've seen and, and from the product that I have right here in my hand, it looks like a pretty standard bucket set that you would get for a kid in a store, you know, like in Walmart or Target for them to play at the beach. I'm going to open up this. You sure you're okay if I... I'm okay. I'm okay. ready. I'm ready. <laughs> Do it. All right. So I'm going to break the, the label on here. Mm-hmm. So the bucket is square in shape and it's a, it's a light blue color. On top of it is a... In my head, I want to say sieve, but it's... Sifter. Sifter. Mm-hmm. It's an orange sifter. It's uh, square. It's shallow. It's It looks like a brownie pan. <laughs> <It looks laughs> yeah, like, that's yeah. And then inside is the shovel. The shovel reminds me of what bakers would use to like scoop out sugar to oh, make, yeah. to make totally. things. Yeah. And um, if you look through the handle, you'll see it's hollow. Oh. And that's for our drip castle fans. Oh, so yeah. So they can make some drip castles with their... With their shovel. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And it feels, it feels like plastic. I mean, it feels like plastic that toys are made of, but it's compostable. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about the process that you went through? Were you involved in designing, you know, like how the plastic was made? Is it still plastic? Do you still call it plastic? I still call it plastic because I just don't know another term for mm-hmm. it yet. And I think it's easier for consumers, right, to to label it yeah. something we know. When I, you know, came home from that beach trip seven years ago, I didn't know, I wasn't committed to it being a plastic necessarily. I just wanted to make something that would disappear at the end of its life. And so I actually started with a mushroom fiber, which was interesting. I was making it in my kitchen. I was baking it. It Mm -hmm. grows. You know, it was like really interesting science experiment, but not the right material. But it was good to sort of 
check out the landscape of different possibilities for materials. And it was really tough. I mean, it took a really long time. The failed mushroom material was several months in the making. And then ultimately, I ended up finding a 3D print filament that worked. I'm really abbreviating the story here, but I started the, the whole thing when we lived in outside of Washington, D.C., which is where I was prototyping the mushroom-based material. And then we moved to Hawaii and I purchased a 3D printer and I was like, well, I have the design, you know, I hired a, a product designer. We designed this, what you see in front of you. Let me see if I can at least 3D print this and see if the design works with this plant-based 3D print filament. Um, and so that's what we did and it worked. It, it wasn't nearly as sturdy as you see it now with the 3D printer. So I knew we were going to have to move to an injection mold. And I decided that that 3D print material was a known quantity. And so what if we could just alter it slightly and turn it into a material that's capable of being injection molded? And so that's what we did. And that's that took several years, but we did it. <laughs> so how does it compost? Say, for instance, you know, it breaks apart or it breaks down. Kids break things. I mean, I, I have four kids and they very easily push toys to the limits. So if, if it were to break and it was no longer functional in the way it was meant to be functional, how would somebody compost it? Yeah. So this is a question I'm asked a lot. And we would ideally want everyone to return these to an industrial compost facility. Now, the catch is there are not many industrial compost facilities in the United States. And so if I had billions of dollars, we would be setting up, you know, satellite take back stations so that everybody could compost these properly. But in lieu of that, they will also compost in active landfill to energy sites. So that's just your sort of run of the mill landfill. It depends on the, you know, what's happening in all of these places. If the toy is broken, how many places is the toy broken? Mm -hmm. Is the toy whole? That's going to change how quickly it takes to break down, but ultimately the product is going to break down and convert back into that compost material, that soil, which is really unique from the, you know, the counterpart, which does not break down, right? It breaks right. down, but it doesn't ever disappear. Right. It just breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces, right? Yeah. And I, I feel like the smaller it breaks down, it feels like the more dangerous it becomes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to a handful of people who have been doing research on plastics pollution and marine debris. What kind of research did you do to get a better understanding of, you know, what plastics are dangerous, how, why they're dangerous, and how to find another a different material that breaks down better, composts better? Well, I was aware of the sort of these gyres that we have at the outset of this journey, these gyres in the ocean full of debris and, and plastics. But the more I've been in this space, the more I've learned and the more, I mean, I don't want to sound alarmist, but like the more frightening it becomes because it is so pervasive. And these initiatives, the UN initiatives, I think they're really important, but I, I also think they have to be working in tandem with other initiatives like alternative materials. Recycling the plastics that we already have is a great use of the plastics we currently have. But as you know, we can only recycle plastics so many times before they're rendered sort of non-usable because we've changed the properties so many times. And so I think just introducing the concept of an alternative to a conventional plastic is really important because this doesn't have to be the answer, but it can be part of the solution. And I hope that there are lots of other companies that are inspired to follow suit because we know that you know it's not just plastics in the ocean. We know that we're consuming a credit card's worth of plastic in a week. That's pretty gross. We know it's it's everywhere, Mount Everest, it's in the Great Lakes in Michigan. But also to get to a plastic product, what do we have to do? We have to extract oil. There's a huge carbon footprint on the front end of these plastics. And so to help reduce that by introducing alternatives, I think is really important so that we can work towards those UN goals, but we can also sort of come at it from all sides, right? 
I really believe there's not just one solution. My product and this material is not a silver bullet, but I do think that it is sort of an, a way to inspire other alternatives and also to inspire us to think about the way we consume products. I mean, I own a beach toy company and I am asking people, do you really need a beach toy? Do you need a beach toy, right? Like what are we making and buying that we really need versus making just to turn a profit? I think we have to really reconsider the way that we make products and the way that we buy products. Where can people out there get this beach set? Everyone can get it online at roguewavetoys.com. And we're working on our wholesale customers. So hopefully soon here on Oahu and beyond. Kate, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you coming down to the studio to talk story with me. Thank you so much for having me. That was Rogue Wave Toys owner Kate Ryman talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. Look for a link to the compostable plastic beach set on the conversation page of our website later today. So if you're up in the chuck where it's got a shop, I do hip hop, but son, I still rise up. Top of the way, got the drop in. Have you ridden on a giant today? That is the program for today. Up tomorrow, we talk about efforts to return a cultural artifact to Lahaina that could have a significant cultural and spiritual impact on the Native Hawaiian community. You can share a story with us or just give us some feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you want to listen back to something you heard, you can find our archived shows online by searching for The Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Bill Dorman, filling in for Catherine Cruz this week. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.